Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. Tribe Called Quest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz. Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim, and you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Hello and welcome to the TalkHouse Podcast. I'm Josh Modell. On this week's episode, we've got a pair of women who came up together during one of the most exciting musical eras ever, and who've got the stories to prove it. Gina Birch and Vivian Goldman. Now, Birch started the Raincoats with friends from a London art college in 1977, stepping right into the burgeoning punk scene with records that were notoriously challenging in a scene not known for being particularly welcome to women to begin with. The Raincoats were never poppy enough to flirt with the mainstream, but thanks to Kurt Cobain, the band had a bit of a resurrection in the mid-1990s. At Cobain's behest, Nirvana's American label re-released the Raincoats catalog, complete with liner notes by him, and the band subsequently made its first album in over a decade. They were even set to tour with Nirvana in Europe, but Cobain's death scuppered that plan. But Birch didn't slow down. She set on a filmmaking career while still pursuing music. She even made music videos for the likes of New Order and The Libertines. Now she's painting quite a bit. Later this year, her paintings will accompany a hardbound volume of Sharon Van Etten's lyrics. And just recently, Jack White's Third Man Records came calling, and it reignited Birch's musical endeavors. This week marks the release of her first ever proper solo album called I Play My Bass Loud. Here's a little bit of the title track. Sometimes I wake up Vivian Goldman is known more as a writer than a musician, but she's done both of those things and much, much more. She worked in PR for Bob Marley and the Whalers way back when, and she lives part-time in Jamaica still, which is where she zoomed in from for this call. At the height of the punk boom, she released an influential single called Laundrette before transitioning more into a writer and journalist mode. She was the editor of influential UK music paper Sounds and co-wrote the massive attack song Sly. She was also roommates with Chrissy Hind and, more important to this conversation, Jeff Travis of Rough Trade Records, which is how she got to know Gina Birch. These days, Goldman has been teaching about the history of punk at NYU, and she dove back into music in a big way last year, releasing an album called Next Is Now. I've only scratched the surface, too. Check out viviangoldman.com for a more complete picture. In this conversation, Birch and Goldman chat about the old days and newer days, how roles and respect for women have changed over the decades, and about the famous musician and producer, Youth, who encouraged them both and produced both of their new records. Enjoy. So um, here we are, where to begin? Me and Gina, it's been a lifelong road. Accomplices, playmates, creative mates, loving sisters. All because of Jeff Travis, the founder of Rough Trade, who was my roommate in Ladbroke Grove, as Gina well remembers. And she was in a squat not far away. Right, Gina? That is correct. I was very shy and I thought everybody else knew a lot more than me about everything. And I thought, who? no one really wants to know me. Who'd be interested in me? So I was always, I was kind of kept quite a low profile, really. And the only time I could be kind of mega fun was when I had a few drinks, uh, which was marvelous. But it did lead to a bit of a drinking problem, finally, after many, many years. I think this is a 
fairly universal problem for shy people. But I, I have now learned to integrate my drunken personality in my day-to-day life. Vivian's frowning because she never knew all this, probably. Well, you know, the funny thing is, I don't think you ever had to get pissed to your dialogue with me. Not with you, Vivian. It's funny, like that thing with the Beatles. I, I refer everything to the Beatles at the moment. Mm. You know, when, when one of them was feeling out of sorts, he'd go to the other three and say, you know, I, I'm feeling a bit out of it because you three are all together. And they'd say, no, no, I thought, I thought it was you three who were all together. And each one of them individually thought the other three were like busy mates and they were the one left out. You have a song about that on your record. I wish I was you. I wish I was me. Yeah. I wish we were somebody else altogether. I used to wish I was you. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's uh, coming together now to think, uh, you know, I fully inhabit myself now, which is great. You know, I, I think when, when you're kind of stepping in and out of yourself, uh, I think you've always fully inhabited yourself, Vivian, and that's brilliant. Okay, that's that's your analysis is definitely correct from your perspective. But I certainly remember all the insecurity and anxiety and wish, you know, <laughs> wish that it wasn't, you know, a lifelong struggle. But we all have to deal, you know, we have to find our ways to deal with it. You know, we do try not to come from a place of anxiety because one makes so many mistakes when you position yourself like that. But, you know, let's say that we benefited, me and Gina, from uh, Jeff Travis simply liking to hear the voices of women, unlike so many others. You know, and he created a very, you could say, female-friendly space, didn't he? He totally did. I mean, from all the back of the musicians he had on the label that were female to all the staff he had in the record label that were female, it was it was great. I mean, Jeff said once that, you know, if you didn't kind of recognize feminism as being one of the most important movements of the last century, then you had your eyes and heart shut, basically. Yes. And it's funny, you know, because we're feminists, but we're not separatists. Absolutely not. And so when you check it out, we were brought together by a male person to wit Jeff. And now we have another fabulous situation because we both have debut albums, yours more recent than mine. But we did them with a fellow. We did. And a fellow who's our friend. Absolutely. And who since that era to wit youth, you know, I remember that gig we all did together at Hampstead a couple of years ago. I could never forget it. It was in a tiny cellar where you really couldn't hear yourself. And that's where you did your feminist song. First time I heard it. And also then I did some uh, stuff like Russian Doll, you know, from my uh, album Next Is Now with Youth. And we had such a great hang that evening I think, wasn't it, that's where the germ sort of solidified for you to work with youth too. I regard that as a magical night. It was. It was thanks to you, Vivian, really, that um, I got to know youth properly because I didn't really know him prior to that. I had met him through Mark Stewart because I did a bit of uh, vocals for for him on on a solo album he was doing and it was at youth's place but at that that point I was completely overwhelmed because I walked into youth had all his recording equipment on the ground floor at that time and and I walked into this room full of men and 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 Mark hadn't sent me the lyrics or anything that I was supposed to do beforehand and suddenly thrust a piece of paper into my hand and I was like ah what the hell do I do so I just kind of I performed in a way that apparently terrified everybody because 
I was quite nervous, so I kind of took control of the situation and kind of performed with great uh, gusto. Yes, youth appreciates women because he's a man who understands the goddess. You know, he's not scared of it, you know? Yeah. He's not scared of that female energy. He embraces it. Yeah. He does. And I noticed listening to your record, so many things came to my mind. While we're on the subject of youth, let's just say that the connection with me and youth was very much like what what Bob Marley called a punky reggae party. He was much younger. He was a kid. And I used to take him around the Shabines and all that, you know. Uh, But that, I mean, I'm speaking to you from Jamaica, West Indies, not Queens. So it really just goes to show how incredibly formative that period was, because when I listen Listen to your record now. I mean, it's it's so much a lot of dub and reggae. Even on digging down, it's like a reggae song, you know. And I think I suppose that was uh, the French, as usual, have a word for it: la formation culturelle, la formation culturelle, one's cultural formation. So it's a funny thing because um, you hear all these debates about cultural appropriation and so on. But I think you have to factor in you know, how people grow up and how people live. And we were formed in, you know, a multi-culti, you know, multicultural vibe. So reggae and dub, that was internalized in our DNA because we grew up with it. And it's interesting to see how it echoes in both our records. Of course, with youth at the controls, it's no surprise. Absolutely. I mean, You know, when I was uh, a teenager as well, there used to be like a Methodist minister and he had us all going to his uh, garage where we all kind of danced our socks off and it was all lots of scar and stuff, you know. So Mm. we we always knew that that they were the most danceable records, you know, the the records that got us all really up on our feet and leaping around and uh, trying to be cool as well. (laughs) It was... uh, in London in 76, 77, there, there was, punk was, was forming, but the music that we were listening to when there weren't that many punk records was, was reggae. And uh, I mean, I remember when I turned up in 75 to Foundation, I used to jump about singing, get up, stand up, stand up for your oh, rights. Your and rights. my friend Alex, who ended up making clothes for The Clash, was like, what is Love that Alex. song? What is that song you're oh. singing? And it was a bit later, she was like, I get it now. Oh, my God. And that's how I learned to play the bass, you know, the toots and the maytails. Absolutely. I used to play bass briefly, but I sort of gave it up because I was so rubbish. But I did have a fantastic lesson on the bass from Family Man Barrett of the Whalers. I don't know whether I ever told you about this. No, you did not. Because I worked a lot with Bob Marley and the Whalers. And so I told him, Sam's, I got a bass. It was a short neck Fender Music Master. I bought it off uh, the bass player of Aswad, and it had the Aswad, the primo British reggae band, and it had the lion on it and everything. So Fams came around and he showed me, he said, you only need to use these frets, right? He's, they're like the top three or four. He said, just keep it there and just go up and down within that. That's all you need. So I was thinking, really, why is the whole rest of it there then? It depends what you're playing with. But if if you're playing with somebody who plays a lot of chords, which in the raincoats, which has, you know, different influences from reggae to the, you know, underground, velvet underground and drones and things. Sometimes the only way to cut through with your melodies is to go quite high up the neck. 
That's how I heard the toots bass line on my old little record player was when they go up the neck and they play so that's you know when when it's down low it's sometimes harder to distinguish but when you go up an octave or two you get these beautiful uh, cutting through high notes you know I, and and it's also funny you know sometimes when i'd be you know if i'm when i'm playing the deep notes if we're in a sound check and then we'll say oh it's vibrating my feet oh turn it down turn it down i'm like no i think there's definitely an affinity between females and the bass and i think it's just a yin and yang thing there's something about the vibration and the depth that just sort of stirs us because we're in a higher register and i think it, it makes us feel complete to some extent i came in through the back door with the bass actually because i thought i can't you know, I really, after seeing the slits, I really, really want to be in a band. I so desperately want to have a band. Well, I knew I couldn't write a song or play guitar or sing, and I, the drums were too big. I thought, the bass, I think I, think I could cope with the bass. Um, so, you know, after a couple of drinks at some art conference in Soho, I rushed down to uh, Macari's on uh, Charing Cross Road, and I walked in and I said... Uh, I want to buy a bass. I need. I want to buy your cheapest one. And they handed me one for thirty pounds. And they said, "Do you want to try it out?" I was like, "No, no, thank you. I'll take it. I'll take it." And I ran home with it. And someone taught me how to tune it. I just started to explore it and found visual patterns. And uh, with reggae, that was kind of nice because there's lots of visual patterns in a lot of reggae bass lines. And so I do feel we have. We have grown strongly together. But, you know, sometimes you, you meet someone and you don't realize quite how significant a part they're going to play in your life. <laughs> I think that's <laughs> like me with the bass, you know. <laughs> the bass and I became very good friends, uh, inseparable, and I hadn't even realized that was going to happen. But it made you feel complete in a way. We talk about playing the bass loud, but at the, at the same time, some of the tracks get their force, like even the rage track from being quieter, you know, and that's something the raincoats have always been good at. I was very chuffed when, because, you know, that double CD we're on together that they made for my book, Revenge of the Sheepunks, which Yay. is another story. And then I sequenced it. I was able to put together my laundrette and your uh, wasn't no one's little girl, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the way they flowed just really demonstrated a whole other aspect of what you might call the punk aesthetic, because everybody thinks it's all like louder, even if we're talking post-punk, uh, louder, harder, faster. But you can get just as much, even almost like violence or attack being quiet as well. So yeah. I think that's, you know, interesting terrain that you explore on the record and that we share. On Rage, for example, when I first wrote that, I, I was whispering it. I, you know, it was like that. It was kind of slightly spooky, I suppose. Hi, Rage. I am Rage. I'm a burning cauldron of rage. You know, and uh, I sang it out more. In fact, on the record, it's the, it's the guide vocal. In fact, it's as we were writing the song mm. that you can hear, if you just solo the uh, vocal track, it's got me playing the guitar and trying to work out the song. It's quite funny, but yeah. Rage doesn't have to be loud, does it?
Hey, this is Josh Modell, host of the TalkHouse podcast. We love it when musicians come on the show and talk about process, and often they'll get into the nuts and bolts of being a working artist, which can sometimes be fun and sometimes feel more like a business. Well, this episode of TalkHouse is brought to you by DistroKid, which is an amazing service for musicians looking to get their songs out into the world in an incredibly smart and cost-effective way. For the past decade plus, DistroKid has made it easy to get your music on all the streaming services, including Spotify, Apple Music, TikTok, Instagram, and more. You keep 100% of your earnings minus a flat yearly fee, which is a better deal than you'll find anywhere else. More than a million artists use DistroKid, and the latest version of their app is better than ever. It includes features that make it easy to see your account details, including the money you've earned, as well as to seamlessly edit things like lyrics and metadata across platforms. There's even a feature called Instant Share, which allows you to easily share files with your bandmates, booking agent, playlist curators, and more. DistroLock allows you to protect your songs. DistroKid users get a YouTube official artist channel, too. The list goes on. The DistroKid app is available on iOS and Android. Go check it out today. Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's teen dance ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. A story of moral panic, grassroots activism, and an unstoppable music community that fought for its freedom. Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network. Hey, TalkHouse listeners, it's Josh Modell. Instead of encouraging you to listen to podcasts today, I'm here to encourage you to read something great. The particular something I have in mind is the second issue of The TalkHouse Reader, the print zine spearheaded by our fantastic music editor, Annie Fell. This issue is focused on the intersection of food and music, and it features contributions from Maddie Matheson, Coleman Domingo, Squirrel Flower, Sam Evian, the Blessed Madonna, and more. There are pieces about eating while on tour, the gentrification of food, cooking as a creative catalyst, and much, much more. You can order a copy today, along with the first issue, at store.talkhouse.com. Please do check it out. I still remember so viscerally this, the, you know, from when I was very little, I was really more in the 60s, but I remember a tiny bit about the 50s. What I really remember is how ghastly it was for women. No, I don't care what they say. You know, you had to wear those shoes that malformed your feet. You had to wear these corsets. I didn't kind of even want to grow up to be a woman when I looked ahead at what lay in wait. Luckily, you know, by the time I started to grow up and be a woman, other modes had come in and you could wear flat shoes and not wear corsets, even not wear a bra if you didn't want, although I always want, you know. So it just really reminded me of that, of the sort of restrictions that there used to be just for being female. Of course, we still have some, but I love that idea. You know, you'll never wear stilettos. Sorry, fashion business, but I really think they're a way of slowing women down. In the 50s, women had to have, you know, very small waists, large breasts and a nice round bottom. You know, it was like the hourglass figure was like, and, you know, and, and granddad would be saying, oh, I'm a leg man. Talk about looking at you as a piece of meat. That sounds like what you want from a chicken. They'd either be a leg man or a breast. I don't know what they called the the top, the chest. I'm a chest man. I'm a chest man. I remember my mum had bought this uh, like little machine. 
it was to enlarge your breasts somehow. You might be wearing a corset so you couldn't breathe very well and you'd be wearing a tight pencil skirt, which might have a little slit up the back. But so as you walked, it would reveal a little bit more leg for the, you know, the titillating man's appreciation. And you would kind of hobble, well, not hobble, you would glide along in these stilettos, you know, and that was... That was not for a fashion show. That was every day. That every was to day. go shopping. That was to go shopping. So it was like this kind of very restrictive uniform. And, of course, we never wanted that for ourselves at all. And fortunately, I went to art school. We all wore very crazy things at art school. And I remember, you know, there were... were there were loon pants for a time in the oh. 70s. And then when I got to art school, it became more about skinny uh, what are the drain pipes, you know. So then we were, all went drain pipes. And, and I was always interested in shoes. But when punk happened, there were the brothel creepers. So we, we took on the Ted's brothel creepers. We used to get chased by Ted's because they didn't like the punks appropriating their footwear I always had an interest in shoes. I thought punk was a very good time for exploring different types of footwear. And I had bought these, uh, uh, we, the raincoats very early on, we invited to Poland and the waitresses wore these amazing kind of like little white ankle boots. They had little holes in them and, and they made your feet very comfortable, but they were quite funky and a bit weird and a bit orthopedic looking. Mm. And I fell in love with them. I bought quite a few pairs back and gave them to my friends. And I wore them all the time. And in fact, I'm wearing in, them in the Jeanette Beckman photograph. Mm, shoot, that fantastic shoot of them, yes. of the raincoats in their rehearsal room in the sort of unfinished toilet. Of in the, the basement squat of my house. I'd like to put in a word while we're talking about punk shoes. I used to come over as a rock journalist to New York a lot to cover new wave bands like the Talking Heads or whoever. And all the girls on the scene, well, definitely Tina from the Talking Heads and definitely me, we would go to Chinatown and get those Kung Fu shoes. I don't know whether they even make them now, but I'd love to have some. They were black canvas or black cotton, and they oh, were yeah. lined with white quilted cotton. Yes, I'd like yes. some of them right now. Anyway, fashion industry, please revive, you know, those Kung Fu shoes because you never see them anymore. Right. Okay, something I was going to throw out is that both of us in our journey, you know, in recent years, we've been plugging back into things that we started out doing. In your case, you've been much more involved with your art than before. And your art is on the cover of the album, very representative of the music. Of course, in my case, it was the reverse because I had done music when I was young in the post-punk era and then just came back to it at around the same time as you were expanding your art and starting to get exhibitions. I think it's great how things can come back round. And for me, it's been really enriching to do music again, okay? And I've been loving it. Um, and I've been also loving the feeling that it was still there inside me to unlock and still bringing me that joy, you know? And I was thinking it's probably the equivalent for you with your art. Yes, I think it is. But I hadn't really painted since I was at school. So mm -hmm. I think all those things that I've been doing and, and you've been doing, they're all connected in a way. And coming to painting was 
what I felt was, was an appropriate place to kind of express myself. When I found out that the canvas was this place that I could make worlds, I could copy paintings and then I could send in characters to save people in the paintings. I could repurpose paintings and I could have all these adventures within painting. And, and that was so exciting, you know. Um, it was a bit like sampling or something, mm. uh, but, but different. Yeah, and I think, you know, we're lucky as, as older women that we've still got, we've got the energy. And I, I always say to people, you know, if you give up, You've given up. If you keep going, things come round. You know, you, you you just have to keep keep working, keep doing what you do, keep being creative, keep keep pushing forward. I couldn't agree with you more. You know, workers like ourselves. You know, it's it's not something you retire from. It's a no. lifelong commitment, and sometimes it's all you can rely on is that joy that you can get from. One's own internal resources. No. So every day I, I paint or I make music or I film or I do... All of the above. There's currently promotion. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Conversations are very important as well, aren't they? Um, I wish you weren't and was in Jamaica, Vivian. When are you coming to Labrook Grove again? Oh, well, actually, with a little bit of luck, you'll see me in around the end of June, if you're there, because there's a reissue of one of my books, a book that I did with my photographer friend, David Corio, a book called Black Cord. So we're hoping to do some stuff at a very well-known museum in London. And Excellent. we're very much hoping that you'll be there. I will be there. On. Yeah. Absolutely. So that's when I hope to be in London next. But I wish you were in Jamaica here with me. Yes. Well, <laughs> yeah, I, I um, you know, I, t two, two daughters, um, a dog and a cat and a lovely husband have kept me in my North London abode recently. And uh, I suppose obviously COVID uh, kept us all a little tied down, didn't it? you're not kidding you know and the whole ramifications and full-on effects of it are yet to be revealed yeah. aren't they yeah so yeah so um tell us some more about the making of the record <laughs> well um i i've been making a lot of music videos for for bands and as the budgets got smaller and smaller and smaller you know i was doing everything and final mm. cut pro seven I was using a great deal so I was very au fait with my computer you know it was my friend and I had I could edit and I could do all sorts of things I could always uh, get the lip sync going from a from recording to a live thing I was really natty at that and uh, and then I and then I got I, when I got Logic 9 after having explored slightly with um, GarageBand, I thought, oh, this is really cool. And I started finding samples. And I, I was just playing. I was playing with all sorts of different sounds um, and loops and, and then just kind of putting some vocals down and then I'd get my bass out, trip over the leads and have the old microphone. And so I was just... Like I'd made lots and lots of little films that have never surfaced, I was making lots and lots of little tunes that never surfaced. And then when it was thought that I might um, make a record with youth, I worked these songs up to a point where I was quite 
pleased with them, you know, and I played them to you. He was like, oh, yeah, well, the electronic songs. I think I prefer you, you know, with playing your bad guitar and singing. Eventually, he, he did like the electronic songs. And so I took all my files down to the studio and we had a great time. We wrote a couple of songs together. He was just this great presence, really. And so, you know, we, we always kind of explored an adventure together and made, made some really good progress with, with my uh, recordings. But what was good was because when I was in the studio, I knew all about logic. So right. when they were working on logic, I could go over to the desk and go, where's this bit? What's happened now? The more you're saying, the more I realise it's in fact all your fault, but I'm now meant to be mastering or mistressing all these bits and bobs on the computer because when I came back to music I was still not that much different from doing the flying lizards or something you know I'd turn up they'd have a track I'd improvise or come up with a melody and some words and I would sing it and that was like what I would do go home with a feeling of a job well done but no longer now you're meant to do the loops you're and youth is saying Vivian, you know, because we're working on something new, you know, he wants me to be able to do like you, fly things in and turn up with stuff. So I'm going to have to up my techno game partly it's, because I mean, of you. It's actually really fun. Now it's all yes. online. You know, you can, anything you want to know, you just get a lesson from somebody on YouTube. It's quite amazing. Especially amazing when it works. I find when I take those tutorials... They say, click on this and I can never find this. But anyway, let's no. not waste our time talking about my techno deficiencies. I can help you with that. If you start with, say, GarageBand or something really simple yes. and then work up, it, it is actually great. You do need a reasonably big screen. I find it much easier to do it on my big oh. screen upstairs than on the laptop. I know what I was going to ask you about. Everybody was very excited about the gig you did the other day at White Cube. Oh, God. with a raincoat. So I saw great reports of it on Facebook from Daisy Wake, our mutual friend. And so yes. it's such a vivid description. I really felt like I was there. That must have been, you still remembered all the tracks or did you have to rehearse a lot to get it back? Oh, well, well what was great was, you know, because we did the first album basically um uh, in a way simpler more kind of gig like so i just i just re reminded myself of all my bass lines and then we had the gig on the tuesday evening but we went into white cube on the monday they built the stage everything was there so we turn up they Oh, we had the best backstage. They'd, they'd rented in all these sofas. We had a huge dining table, the brilliant food. We were treated so brilliantly. And then we rehearsed from 12 o'clock to like five or six. VC had come over from LA. Anne had come down from Scotland. And we just rehearsed for quite a few hours with a few breaks for snacks and things. And then that evening... There was a massive dinner for friends and family of the artists and our friends. And, oh, it was fantastic. And then the next day we went in at midday, we rehearsed a little bit more, and then we did the gig. And uh, we made more mistakes in the gig than we had made for the whole of the rehearsal time. But 
we had these adoring faces looking at us the whole time. That was their fault. They put us off looking so adoringly at us. I think in our crew, you know, sometimes the feeling does count for more than a, a note that might be a wee bit off. The feeling was there. And Imi, Imi, Imi Knobel, whose paintings were in the, uh, the gallery, had all these amazing kind of uh, large kind of colour color plane kind of paintings um the galleries just look fantastic and then by the end of the evening all people were dancing in in these huge galleries and it was very beautiful and very very heartrending that's a beautiful thing and it's funny you know you're talking about relationships between women and just to go back for a second to what we were talking about earlier about that 1950s attitude relating to your track, I'll never wear stilettos. Uh, the way w women were taught to relate to each other back in the day was uh, to be very suspicious of each other and ready to sort of drop each other or stab each other in the back to clamber over one another to get to this theoretical target of a some guy on a white charger who would sort out all your problems for the rest of your life so I think that is again something that when punk came along uh, was very positive because it really reasserted a sisterhood that we didn't need to compete we could just be mates because there were that was just as important as finding some theoretical non-existent lifelong meal ticket you know um, so I, I really cherish that sisterhood, to be honest. I'm just so glad that I slash we came of age when I slash we did to really experience that much healthier mindset. And I absolutely think it's glorious that even though distance has separated us, nonetheless, to be honest, my girlfriends from that period, including, say, yourself, Jeanette Lee, Jeanette Beckman, and so on, you know, we're still tight you know we still yeah. can turn to each other understand each other argue perhaps more spontaneously than others you know we still have that proper connection and something that makes life so worth living so enriching so I'm really glad that we came of age when we did with those healthier attitudes and that we have each other as a support uh system you know, a lot of people, when they read Revenge of the Sheepunks, which is a book that writing it made me incredibly angry, they pick up on little things in it, like where uh, women bands, um, uh, you know, they would go to a sound check and the guys wouldn't listen or they would try and sabotage them, the engineers and so on. You know that story when the Raincoats were on tour and Tom Morley from, was the drummer in Scritti Politti. He'd been on mm. tour with the, our sound guy previously to our tour. And he'd gone up to Glenn, this, who was mix, supposedly mixing our sound, and said, hi, Glenn, how are you doing? Well, Glenn was mixing. And then Glenn took off his headphones and gave them to Tom. And he was listening to ACDC when he was supposed to be mixing our sound. I'm going to be sick. So <laughs> I mean, revolting. I think he was rather proud of this. That was a thing that they were kind of, you know, proud to be dissing us. They got off on it. But, you know, it's interesting also when you think of the world of art uh, for women and art, you know, now you're getting some acclaim and you're encouraged by the climate to return to those artistic roots and revisit them and make something, you know, of you as a grown woman, you know. Only very recently, you look at our mutual friend Caroline Kuhn, 
such a brilliant artist, such a vision. And she was just one among many who couldn't get arrested until maybe the Me Too movement two minutes ago because of basically being penis deficient. Yeah. So, but we are seeing somewhat of a change, but you know what it is, la luta continua. And I mean, what we've learned, I think, is that we have to be ever vigilant because look what just happened in America with the abortion one would think it was impossible but yeah. you know rights that we personally as in like you and me we benefited from that certain legal changes that came about at the same time as punk and just before punk where women had the rights to say buy a house get a credit card get a car loan women hadn't been able to do anything like that before because it always had to be countersigned by a father or a husband one's keeper and that is sort of so recent and then we started to think that maybe the world was settling to rights a little bit in that direction at least that you know outside of afghanistan or iran most people understood that women had rights you know and then they come and slap us in the face like this in america it shows that really, you know, you've got to stay on the whole time. The way they want to protect the fetus or keep women in their place and how they don't protect people, Absolutely. people who actually exist and who are, who are struggling and who are dying because, because of the, these uh, horrible evangelicals. And, and at know. the same time, they make it very difficult to if people really wanted women to have more children within the government they should like make it a little bit easier to have children and get them health care i'm talking yeah. about america more than england yeah, you know yeah, how it's totally, much more law totally. of the jungly in america but uh, to get the the health insurance and so on to get the education to get the child care and keep your job they make it so daunting. Anyway, we've probably traveled quite far. I don't know whether this is the conversation Talkhouse was expecting, but it's certainly real. Tell us a bit about your, your making your album with youth, Vivian. It's so nutty and, uh, and uh, Jamaica was in the mix, I have to say, because looking at the state of the music industry... After I've been having some success, as you know, in the early 80s with the Flying Lizards and then with Laundrette and Private Armies and even in France with my duo Chantage with my friend Eve Blouin. But as I looked around, I just couldn't see many jollies. I was getting into my 30s. The whole industry was just so skewed in a different way. And I had an, other skill sets like you at that time. Uh, independent TV was just starting and I had the opportunity to go and be a producer director. I made some amazing documentaries and got to do the video with Eric B and Rakim. I ain't no joke and several other fabulous things. And I really said to myself, you know what? The music is inside you. My father was a musician. I was raised with the music. I said, you'll always be a musician, whether you manifest it in the public arena or not work where you can really get your work out. So I did that TV for a long time. Then I moved to America and became the punk professor at NYU and so on. But in that, a, a label in Germany approached me to put out my old music. And it came out as this uh, LP called Resolutionary, you know, including my work 
you know, with with Vicky from the raincoats and yes, with people yes, yes. from Phil and so on. And it became very popular. And I started to get asked to do gigs. So I was asked to do this big gig in Berlin. It was classic because I had an hour-long set in a primo position on a Saturday night. And I added up all the songs on Resolutionary. And I didn't have a full hour. Wow. So, and I ran into youth because I was working with him on a job with our friends, uh, Zach Starkey and Shush, a job in Jamaica. And I was telling him just like, I'm telling you now, I was laughing. I was like, I don't know what to do. And you said, well, let's make some more. Yay. <laughs> so we did a couple of songs. We did, I think even maybe my bestie, we did a couple of songs that worked out really well. And he's like, let's make an album. And so we did. Yeah. yeah. Well, I remember you being in town when you were making it and you kept saying, I've got to write all these lyrics tonight. He's really going on and we're working so fast. Yes. I have to say that youth, you know, for all his sort of somewhat laid back hippie-esque reputation, which he does cultivate being like laid back guru type. But when it comes to the studio, he is one tough, expletive, deleted and I was under no illusions, even though in a way I'm like, we're like so close. He's youth like my brother, you know, I love youth. We've been together most of our lives, but I was under no illusion that he wouldn't just shut me out of the studio if I didn't deliver. So the pressure was really on. I was Actually, I was staying at Nana Cherry's at that moment. And that's a very good musical context. And I would be coming home like, oi vey, that I got into the garden be furiously writing and they'd all be looking at me and say oh poor Vivian look at her go <laughs> uh -huh. I think that's true I mean youth doesn't mess about in the studio no. before we even finished it he had to go to rehearsals uh, and he was off on tour and then he was you know I, some days I'd turn up and he wouldn't be there and he'd be like oh he was doing a lecture in some college or he was DJing in some in some uh, record shop or something his work ethic is phenomenal for somebody who does appear to be quite laid back he never stops not only that he paints he works you know he writes he Poetry. gets books out you know and he is a great one for pushing you to be that exploratory of yourself like I used to do a bit of drawing when I was a kid, but at a certain point I said, oh, I can only do so much. I stopped drawing, you know, and he's always like, you can do it. You can do it. And he would relish giving me a track that I didn't really relate to. And I'd say, I don't know if I'm feeling this. And he would say, that's just because you're not trying. And uh, then he would yes. push me and push me against my better judgment. And I would come up with something that would turn out to be one of our favorites. Yeah. No, yeah. I remember when we finished the album, I, I was like, uh, oh, um, yeah, well, it's great, isn't it? And, and he, he was like, you need a manager. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. And he pushed me to kind of take myself seriously in, in a way that um, – you know, I always take myself seriously, but, you know, the business side is, uh, is something else. And so I, 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 um, I had to find someone to kind of push, it, push me and take it, take it so that it would get some kind of exposure. And, and I think, you know, that's the same for you in a way. You, you know, it, you can make something brilliant and it can sit on a shelf or, yeah. or you can find a, a really good team 
and find a place that uh, that you belong. And, yes. and in a way, it felt great to me. Youth pushed me to do it. And it was like, it was at that moment. It was just my time, really, I think, yeah. that I would find the right people. Yeah. Well, I'm sort of still looking for that crew. So if anybody watching this knows a brilliant manager for me, send them my way. I'm just exactly. sort of still punky, do it DIY. But having just taught the David Bowie class, I can share this, although I don't feel like I'm as clever as him. But at a certain point, somebody said to him, David, what is the point in you having all these managers? They only rip, not that yours will rip you off. And hopefully if I find one, they won't rip me off. But he was saying, you know, you've had a lot of run-ins with managers. You know it inside out. Why don't you do it yourself? So latterly, he did do that. So when I think it's all too much, I try and find consolation in David Bowie, as one does, <laughs> as one always does. I, I found myself in a very lucky situation, actually, though, because, um, you know, uh, Jack White has this label and he is, uh, you know, very amazing uh, detail. He's a great designer. Uh, he's, I think he makes furniture. And, uh, and so he, he's, got the, he's got this very successful label and he has uh, built these um, uh, shops and uh, uh, performance spaces. And so it's doing phenomenally well in, in, in America and then decided to open up in, in London. And that's how I got involved with them because Dave Buick was looking to make some seven inches for the launch of, of the shop in London. And it's like early rough trade in the sense that there's not many people involved, very early rough trade, not many people involved. And it's, it's, it's incredibly warm. It's incredibly uh, supportive and encouraging and has been for me like a dream come true, really, because so it's, 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 um, it's got all the things that, that um, I, I've really loved about early rough trade and everything and 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 a little bit of oomph behind it from all the the american um yeah enterprise oh. yeah brilliant it's great how it worked out i know vivian and it will oh. do for you you've just got to get there the team the team you need the team, team. come on team come for vivian manifest but you have so many great things going on. I mean, you know, you do all these amazing books. And are you working on any documentaries right now? I've got quite a few books on the go, as well as I've been doing some tracks. Like I, I just did uh, some work with a top German band, Patterns, and another German band. And I'm starting to work on my tracks for youth for the next bit. But I've got a lot of book action happening at the moment, to be honest. I've got this uh, book coming out in which you'll find some of the primordial articles with your own good self. Hi, great. A book coming out of my collected journalism. Oh, that'll be amazing. I can't yeah. wait to get that one. Writing is something that is very profound for me. Yeah. And there's something about it that is where it's just mano a mano. It's just you, yourself, and the struggle to write something compelling and necessary in, a, in an elegant way, you know? And yeah. nobody else can do it but you. When you have that amazing talent and skill, you do just, you have to push with that. And the things that surround it are, are icing on the cake, really. Yeah. I would never dream of trying to write a book well, about you might anything. someday. 
But you know what? The balance, like I feel even happier doing writing partly because I'm also doing music. Yeah. The ba- having that balance back is just great. Yeah. You know, when you write, by definition, you sit alone at home in a room going insane. Yeah. That's what writing is. So it's really great to go insane with others in a different way in the studio. You know, even when I had sort of abandoned doing music pretty much, you still have all these songs and this music and these lyrics running around in your head anyway, all the time, because that's just what it means to be a musical person. Right. So it's just fantastic to be able to let that out again. And, you know... Again, it's not something that one retires from. Thanks for listening to the TalkHouse podcast, and thanks to Gina Birch and Vivian Goldman for this fantastic chat. If you liked what you heard, please follow TalkHouse on your favorite podcasting platform and check out all we've got on offer at TalkHouse.com. This episode was produced by Myron Kaplan, and the TalkHouse theme is composed and performed by The Range. See you next time.